Good morning, Grace Mosaic, again. As um, Brother Travis said, my name is Pastor Irwin Ince. I'm new pastor on staff here at the Grace DC Network as of January 1st, and I am for our family making our primary congregational home here at Mosaic, and so it's a delight for me to be able to share from God's Word with you again in our sermon series on the kingdom of God now and forever. I want to turn your attention to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 1 to 19. It's our text for this morning, and I want to talk with you on this subject, the scandal of God's kingdom. The scandal of God's kingdom, and as I do every time I preach, I try to have a simple sentence, a theme, if you will, that we can all kind of grasp our minds around. I, I don't ever assume to think that everything I say in this sermon is going to be heard or even maybe even worth hearing. Uh, so remember this, here's the point of this message that Jesus' love is such that even our doubts about him are not enough to keep him or prevent him from pursuing us. That Jesus' love is such that not even the doubts that we have about him are enough to keep him from pursuing us. Do you look with me, the Gospel of Matthew, I invite you one more time to stand with me. We read from Matthew chapter 11. Here's God's word. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went out from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? 
It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you again for your amazing grace. We say as we sang, worthy is the Lamb. We thank you, Lord God, for this word that is not dead, but that is alive and is sharp and is active, Lord, and that pierces our hearts and that speaks, Lord, to our, tr to, our, to our hearts and speaks to our needs. And we pray, Lord God, as those who are sitting here, standing here naked and exposed to you, the one to whom we must all give account, that you would take my weak and unworthy efforts in your word and that you would use them as you see fit to speak your truth, meet us where we are, and give us what we need, that we will be people who live for the glory of your praise. Through Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. 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 Well, last year, during the last school year on Friday mornings, I would take our youngest son, Jeremiah, who is now 13, he was 12 at the time, I, and in sixth grade, I would drive him to school. He normally takes a school bus, but Friday mornings, he participated in what his school called news team, and he, so they did a little news broadcast in the morning before school got started, and so I had to uh, drive him to school, and so uh, this particular Friday that I'm talking about, uh, that, that morning he was a little bit congested, a little bit stuffy, and it seemed like uh, he had a little bit of a cold, but, but none really the worse for wear. So I said, well, you know, let's not keep him home. He can go. He can go and do his thing. But around 11 o'clock that morning, I got a text message from Jeremiah, and it read this way. I know that I'm not supposed to be texting during school, but I don't feel well. I don't know if it's allergies, but I feel like I'm going to throw up at some point today. So what does a father do? Of course, I respond, and I tell him I'm coming to pick him up. And so on my way to school, I text my wife to ask her uh, to remind me what Jeremiah's teacher's name is, because I have this problem of just I cannot remember the teacher's name. And she replies to me in text message, I don't think you need the name. Just go to student services and they'll find him. And I'm a bit skeptical at that reply because I've done this before. And I remember them asking me about the teacher's name. And so I get to the school and I go to the front office and the lady at the front desk asks me whether I'm here to pick up my child. And I say, yes, I am. His name is Jeremiah Ince. As I'm filling out the early dismissal form, do you know what the next question is? What's his teacher's name? And I'm thinking to myself, I knew it. I knew it. I, I, I'm not going to, I'm going to have to be embarrassed and say that I don't know. I tell her I don't remember. So she starts looking up his name on the computer to search for him. 
But she has a puzzled look on her face as she does this because she can't find him. She's searching and does another search, and then she tells me later that she does a a system-wide search for Jeremiah. Then she looks at me and says, Jeremiah is in sixth grade. Now, I know that. But immediately, I fall down to one knee. I put my head in my hands and am utterly embarrassed. Jeremiah goes to Mayfield Woods Middle School. I went to pick him up from Deep Run Elementary School. Now, mind you, I had just dropped him off at Mayfield Woods Middle School a few hours earlier that morning. Of course, the ladies and other parents in the front office had a nice little laugh at my expense. And if it were possible, I have no doubt that my face would have been bloodshot red. Couldn't believe what I'd done. By the time I got to Mayfield to pick Jeremiah up, he was wondering what had taken me so long. Now, what does this story have to do with our text this morning? Well, not very much, except at this point. The title of the sermon is The Scandal of God's Kingdom. And in our regular life experience, we all have events that that might be deeply embarrassing. But typically, those, even those deeply embarrassing events don't usually rise to the level of something that's scandalous. If I one day run for public office, it's not likely what I did on that Friday will be dirt that somebody digs up and, and says, look at what he did. He forgot where he took his child to school. But there are things that can be scandalous and can be a mark against you if you are in the public eye, and we find in our text this morning, Jesus showing his disciples in the crowds that being associated with him can indeed be scandalous. Not because they necessarily do something wrong, but as one commentator, Stanley Hauerwas, writes, the kingdom he brings is one of gentleness and humility that cannot help but reveal the violence of the world. We will not, therefore, be surprised then, Hauerwas says, that after Jesus has plainly said who he is and what he has come to do, that everything he says and does invites controversy and resistance. I want to look with you this morning at these 19 verses in four points. I'm going to talk about the scandal from verses 1 to 6, and then the superlative from verses 7 to 11, and the suffering, verses 12 to 15, and the snare in verses 16 to 19, the scandal, the superlative, the suffering, and the snare. And let's situate ourselves this morning in Matthew's gospel as we begin to look at the scandal from verses 1 to 6. Here, if you will, is just a brief overview of the structure of of Matthew's gospel book, the 
first four chapters of these 28 chapters are essentially introduction, and then chapters 26 to 28 are the conclusion of the book, and in between chapters 5 to chapter 25 are five major discourses or sermons of Jesus that the book is centered around. And and, And after each discourse, Matthew makes this bridge statement saying something like, after Jesus finished these sayings or these instructions or these parables, such and such happened or he did such and such. You'll find that statement at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, verse 28. You'll find it in chapter 13, verse 53, in chapter 19, 1, and chapter 26, verse 1. And what do we find in verse 1 of our text here in chapter 11? It says, then when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went up from there to teach and to preach in their cities. So guess where we are? We're transitioning from a major discourse, the second major discourse in the gospel book, the Sermon on Mission, where Jesus has just got finished predicting opposition for his 12 disciples. This to, and now we're transitioning to the section where we see that opposition explained implicitly and explicitly. So here's one aspect of the scandal. Our passage follows on the heels of Jesus' message to the 12 about the opposition they will face as they do the work of the kingdom. They're not to be surprised, he has explained to them, that their good work is met with suspicion and rejection and persecution. If they are like Jesus, he says, then others will react to them in the same way that they reacted to him. He says in chapter 10, verse 25, if they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? And so now he transitions to the implication of this for the members of the kingdom. He says in verse 2, Matthew says, now after John heard about the works of the Christ while he was in prison, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, are you the one to come? Or should we be waiting for another? Matthew doesn't tell us until chapter 14 why John is in prison, but he gets word that Jesus is preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven and that Jesus is doing the miraculous. And John and Jesus had the same message at the beginning of the book. Chapter 3, verse 1, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, repent, For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then when Jesus comes on the scene in chapter 4 and verse 17, after he's tempted in the wilderness, Matthew says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So why is John asking this question now? John is the one who said to the people, I baptize you with water for repentance, but there's one who is coming after me who is mightier than I am. I'm not worthy to untie or to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Why is John doubting? Let me say this to you this morning. Understand this doubt Doubt is not the same as unbelief. 
Doubt is not the same as unbelief. To experience doubt as a believer in Jesus, to experience doubt as a Christian is not actually a cause for shame. It's not scandalous. Sometimes Christians can think that if they have any doubt about any aspect of the Christian faith, they're somehow unacceptable to or fail in God. And this is often an aspect of the Christian faith that non-Christians don't understand either. It is inherently the case, if you're not a Christian, right, that you've got doubts about it. You doubt the authenticity of the Bible. You doubt the authenticity of Jesus and his resurrection, his claim to be the way and the truth and the, the life. You doubt the necessity of the salvation that he's offered. You doubt the reality of heaven and, and hell. We have a culture that, that exalts skepticism. Dallas Willard, a uh, philosophy professor at USC from 1965 to 2012, who was also a Christian, a Christian put it this way. He said, we, we live in a culture that has for centuries now cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. He was right to say, if you're going to be a doubter, be sure to doubt your doubts as well as your beliefs. Here's the point that I'm making when it comes to this issue of doubt, doubt is not the barrier to faith for a non-Christian. Unbelief is the barrier to faith. It is a matter of the heart, not a matter of the intellect. For the Christian, the existence of, of doubt is not the same as unbelief. It is what arises in us when our experience as Christians doesn't match our expectations. John's doubt here comes from his affliction. His expectation of the Messiah's coming did not include his imprisonment. Jesus says to John's disciples, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus is assuring John, you're not wrong about me, John. There was an expectation that the promises God had made to his people in the Old Testament, particularly in the, the book of Isaiah, would be fulfilled. Passages like Isaiah 29, 17 to 18, Isaiah 35, 3 to 6, and Isaiah 61, 1 to 2, where the prophet said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. This year of jubilee when healing and wholeness and salvation would come, Jesus says, it's here because I'm here. All of those expectations, all of those promises, Jesus says, are fulfilled in me. The problem John the Baptist had was that when he was preaching, he said, the one who is coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And John is asking Jesus, where's the fire? Where's the fire, Jesus? Where's the vengeance of our God? Isaiah didn't just say, Jesus, that the blind would see and the deaf would hear and the poor would have good news preached to them. He said that the ruthless shall come to nothing and the scoffer shall cease and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. Isaiah said that a highway called the way of holiness shall be there and the unclean shall not pass over it. Isaiah said the servant of the Lord would proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Where is it, Jesus? Why, if you are the one who is to come, am I in prison? Do you see it? Do you hear it? My expectation for how this thing is supposed to line up is not lining up with my reality. I have an expectation of how the Lord is supposed to fulfill what he's promised to do. And Jesus' response to John is a gentle rebuke. Remember the context I just talked about. Jesus has just gotten finished telling the 12 disciples what the cost of being a disciple looks like. Now here is a living and breathing example of it in John the Baptist. He's languishing in prison, a prison from which he will not be released, the place from which he will be executed. The scandal of faith in Jesus Christ is that God is patient with sinners. The scandal of the faith is that God is patient with sinners, and that means that his people will suffer. They will live in this paradox of favor from God, peace with God, grace from God, and hardship in life because they're associated with Jesus. How do you think every week in our liturgy, every week in the order of worship, we have a confession of sin, why, and then what do we have? we have? We have words of God's offer of grace, the assurance of pardon. We need to hear it every week that God will meet us in our doubts. Because life as a Christian often does not line up with how we think it should look. The crazy thing is, that even with John's doubt, what does Jesus say about him to the crowds in verse 7? Now look, when Jesus talks about people, he doesn't regularly describe them in superlatives. So when, when we find him doing that, we ought to pay particular attention. Jesus begins speaking to the crowds. He, like the, John's disciples go away and he turns and he begins speaking to the crowds, asking them questions in verse 7. Why did you go out into the wilderness? Did you go out into the wilderness to see a reed that was being blown to and fro by the wind? Why did you go out into the wilderness? To, did you go out to see a man that was dressed in soft clothing? Jesus says, look. The people who wear soft clothing, they're laying up in king's houses. Why'd you go out 
You went out to see a prophet? Jesus says, yes, a prophet. And I tell you, I tell you even more than a prophet, he is the one concerning whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before you. He will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist among those born of women. That's a superlative of superlatives. And you say, I said, well, ain't that a bit much, Jesus? I mean, I mean, you mean to tell me that John the Baptist is greater than everybody? I mean, Jesus, you forget about Abraham. You forget about Moses. You forget about Ruth. You forget about King David. What about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, De and Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, all these people of faith, the list could go on. Nobody greater than John. Jesus helps the crowds understand who John is. John cannot be disregarded by them because he's in prison. They didn't get it. Jesus will say down in verse 18, John came neither eating or drinking, and you say he has a demon. Y'all are trying to cast him off, but John was the greatest and more than a prophet because, as to quote Stanley Hauerwas again as he puts it, he has the unique office of heralding Israel's Messiah. John wasn't great. He wasn't the greatest because of anything inherent in John. John was great because he was the one Malachi spoke of in Malachi 3.1. I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. He is Elijah who Malachi spoke of in Malachi 4 and 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Jesus tells the crowds in verse 14, if you're able to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Come, and yet the point of the superlative is the contrast that Jesus makes. As great as John is, Jesus said, as great as John is, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. Listen, when Jesus says that, right, he's not talking about He's not denigrating John, and he's not talking about levels of membership in the kingdom of heaven. Membership in the kingdom of heaven is not like membership in your, in your gym. You don't got your basic membership in silver and gold and, and platinum. But that's how his disciples think. You find that in Matthew chapter 20, when John and James, they send their mama to Jesus, right? And they asked him to have positions of power in the kingdom. Jesus, he said, when you come into your kingdom, bless us, grant us to sit in these positions of power at your right and at your left. Jesus is talking here about this great privilege, the immeasurable blessing of being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The shock value is that any old member of the kingdom is greater than John. John was great, but he stood at the edge. 
John was great, but he stood at the edge. He was the last of his kind, standing at the edge of the old age and looking into the new, but he wasn't all the way in. John's day was not the day of Jubilee. His day was one of desolation and exile and oppression. The new age is a year of Jubilee with the kingdom arriving in Jesus Christ. And so, as the old American Express commercial used to say, membership has its privileges. Why is it a privilege to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Why is it a privilege to be citizens of Jesus' kingdom? Why is it better to be in his kingdom rather than out of it? To answer that question, we got to hear Jesus' statement in verse number 6. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one, Jesus was saying, who isn't scandalized by me, who doesn't find a reason for unbelief in me, who doesn't find a reason to disbelieve the things that I'm saying and doing. Jesus continually puts himself right at the center of God's kingdom, right at the center of life. The privilege of membership is clarity. The person who's least in the kingdom of heaven doesn't have more faith than John the Baptist. They just have more clarity. Don Dan Doriani, pastor and professor, writes, those who lived later saw Jesus' ministry to the end and so had a more complete revelation of Jesus' ministry. The privilege of membership is clarity. Clarity on where your primary identity lies because you've seen the unfolding ministry of Jesus Christ on your behalf. In the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, the citizens of the kingdom seek to draw their primary identity from their relationship with God, a relationship that they did not establish, that they don't maintain, that can never be destroyed, and that is rooted in the deep, deep love of God. This clarity of identity is necessary because what Jesus does is immediately move from this statement of, of privilege to talking about suffering again. Right after he says that the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John, he says in verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. And there are all kinds of interpretations of this one verse. All kinds of various translations of this verse, but the essence of it is negative in force. Jesus is issuing a warning to his disciples to prepare for violence. The kind of violence that John is experiencing as Jesus is talking the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. The sense of that statement is most likely the, the straining and the difficulty with which the kingdom of heaven advances in the world. The New Living Translation, I think, 
hits the nail on the head and getting the sense of verse number 12. It translates that verse. And from the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. The advancement, listen, the advancement of God's kingdom cannot be stopped. The advancement of God's kingdom in the world cannot be stopped. It's God's kingdom, and God is the one with the power and the authority. But it's no easy road because it is constantly under attack from violent people. Again, again, remember this section. I would encourage you in your reading, go back and read chapters 10 and 11 of the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 10 of the gospel was Jesus' sermon on mission that he gave to the 12 disciples. The, The emphasis was on the cost of discipleship. It came after Jesus sent them out with his power and authority telling them to to cleanse and to heal and to cast out demons and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And and they might have thought, well, if we got all this authority, that means we're going to be the big men in Jerusalem. But Jesus has to give them a message that they shouldn't be surprised that as they carry Jesus' message of healing and hope and restoration and renewal, they're not met with celebration but with suffering. The good work, his message was, the good work in his name wasn't, would not result in fame and fortune, but would often result in misunderstanding and disregard and disdain. Because, because the kingdom of God is so, is so powerful, it's also divisive. Its power arouses strong opposition. What Jesus lays out in that sermon in chapter 10 is being worked out in chapters 11 and 12. Matthew is describing growing opposition. There's more negative than positive in these chapters. The presence and the message of the kingdom often creates a violent response because it includes the necessity of having the Lord at the center of our existence and not ourselves. It comes with the promise of peace. But the only way we know how to pursue peace in this world is actually through violence. That's because, that's because peace, whether it's nations at war or families with internal strife or sports teams that that can't get along, no matter what it is, peace for us regularly means having things the way we want them. Like, We're in D.C., right? Why in the world can't our politicians achieve any substantive work and policies on Capitol Hill? It's in large part because the way to get life as we want in America is to beat the other party to become the majority and be in control. That's actually not the way to peace. It's the way to ongoing strife. another quote that I love. Listen from Harold Watts. Listen to what he says. The kingdom comes through peace brought by Jesus. This kingdom is not some ideal of peace 
that requires the use of violence for its realization. We live life as if we are our own lords, our own creators. We respond violently to anyone who might challenge our presumption that we are in control of our existence. We do not want to be reminded that when it is all said and done, we will all be dead. This kingdom Jesus brings is one of gentleness and humility that cannot help but reveal the violence of this world. Yet the very gentleness of the kingdom affects a judgment on those who refuse to believe that the love that moves the sun and stars is the same love that's found in this man. And so if you are a citizen of this kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ, it is necessary to have clarity about your unearned privilege because what Jesus says and does always invites controversy and resistance. Jesus has a mostly negative tone in our text because he's primarily rebuking those who are offended by him, those who are scandalized by him. But let me offer you a word of encouragement and exhortation, especially if you find yourself among those struggling to believe. Especially if you find yourself among those offended by the things that Jesus says and does. Listen, don't be content to dismiss the struggle. Don't be content to ignore what's offending you about Jesus and his gospel and his message. God can handle it. God can handle it. That's part of the scandal of his love. The love that moves the sun and the stars in their course is the same love that is found in Jesus. That means his love is married to power. He doesn't dismiss you as quickly as you are trying to dismiss him. So don't ignore the struggle. Don't dismiss the struggle. Let me encourage you to hear Jesus saying to you that you got to get off the throne. You got to step down off the throne. You don't call the shots in this deal. He does. Borrow from Harawas one more time. That the deaf, the mute, the blind, the poor, he says, those rendered helpless in the face of suffering recognize Jesus is not accidental. The fact that those who are deaf, mute, blind, poor, rendered helpless, they recognize in the face of suffering recognize Jesus, that's not an accident. His point is that it's only when you recognize your inability, your disability, as it were, your poverty before God, that you can grasp the nature of his love and his kingdom. And I can issue you that encouragement because Jesus issues it himself in verse 15. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Anyone with ears to hear should listen to and understand what I'm saying. Yet Jesus knows that there were many who would not hear nor understand what he was saying. There's a tone of frustration even in his voice. In these last few verses of our text, he goes from the reality of suffering to the reality of the snare. And the snare is this. When it comes to the message of the kingdom, you'll never be able to satisfy everybody. He asks another question in verse 16. 
But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children, he says, sitting in the marketplace and calling on their playmates. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. Right? Children love to play make-believe, don't they? Right? When their friends come over to the house, they, they'll play and they'll make up games to play. And usually somebody uh, is, is in charge. It's the, that child who assumes control will assign roles and responsibilities. You know, you do so-and-so, you play this part, you do that part, and every once in a while, the child who has been assigned the same role in the game they keep playing uh, that, that he or she doesn't want, they resist their assignment. I don't want to be so-and-so today. I'm not playing anymore. And sometimes, I know not with any of the children in Grace Mosaic, sometimes the children, it leads to a verbal and yes, even physical conflict among the children. Well, that's not new. This generation, Jesus says, is like a group of children playing together, somewhat a make-believe wedding. I'll be the musician, you be the bride and groom dancing, but somebody doesn't want to do a wedding. Okay, let's play a make-believe funeral. I'll do the funeral song and you'll be the people who mourn, but somebody doesn't want to play the funeral either. This is how it is with this generation, Jesus says, John and Jesus are the ones who are declaring what time it is. John came neither eating nor drinking. Uh, his diet was locust and wild honey. He ate meagerly and impoverished life, telling that generation it was a time to mourn over their sin. Their king was coming, John was saying, and they weren't ready to receive him. People might have liked listening to him, but they thought he was a little cuckoo. We're not going to play along with you and mourn, John. In fact, you might even have a demon. And then Jesus talks about himself. He says, the Son of Man comes eating and drinking. The Son of Man comes celebrating the arrival of the kingdom, the good news, jubilee. Jesus would go into people's homes, and he would eat, and he would drink, and share the good news of God's love and his grace for those who repent. And that generation said, we're not celebrating with you. We don't like the people you're hanging out with, Jesus. You're a glutton and a drunkard. You're a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is a way of Jesus saying, you can't please everybody. You can't win if that's what you're trying to do. The problem is that the preacher in Ecclesiastes was right. There's a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. But this generation, he said, can't discern the time. They don't play along because they don't want to submit to the reality of God's judgment or the truth of his lavish grace for those who don't deserve it. Wasn't just that generation caught in the snare of never being satisfied or pleased with Jesus, but Jesus is right. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. That is, wisdom is proven right by its results. Jesus Christ 
is the wisdom of God. He is identified with divine wisdom, and the snare still exists. The dissatisfaction with Jesus still exists because in the wisdom of God, he chose what is foolish in the eyes of the world to shame those who are wise in the world. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world so that no one would be able to boast in the presence of God. Listen, here it is, the scandal of God's kingdom, his patience with sinners, even those who are never satisfied. The center of this scandal is those words. Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one, literally that word offended, our English word scandal is derived from that Greek word. Blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me. He is describing unbelief. And listen, this is something Matthew is doing to set us up. Let me wrap this up by making this point to you. Matthew is setting us up. This word means to lead to ruin. It has the nuance of being, of giving offense, of being seduced to sin, and it is used regularly in the Gospel of Matthew referring to Jesus. Jesus is referencing himself as the one who, through whom this offense, this ruin comes. And Matthew's setting us up because we find this phrasing throughout. We find it in chapter 13 and verse 57 where the people in his hometown, Matthew says, took offense at him. And Matthew says in verse 58 of that chapter that Jesus couldn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And we might not be surprised that the people in his hometown didn't believe in him, but Matthew isn't done yet. When we get toward the end of the book, as Jesus is at the Last Supper in the upper room celebrating the Passover with the 12 disciples, he says to them in chapter 26 and verse 31, you will all fall away because of me. It is the same word. You will all take offense because of me. It's the same phrasing. And Peter says, even if everyone falls away, even if everyone takes offense because of you, even if all of them are scandalized by you, I'll never be scandalized by being associated with you. And Jesus says to Peter, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny that you know me three times. And Jesus says, even if I got to die with you, Jesus, I will never deny you. And, it, and Matthew says, and all the disciples said the same thing. What happened? They were all scandalized by Jesus. When Jesus was being tried and condemned and crucified, they wanted nothing to do with him. Peter even invoked a curse on himself rather than be identified with Jesus in his suffering. This was about more than embarrassment. Jesus' message to John was identification with me is the definition of happiness, but it will at the times bring with it a disdain from others. You will be scandalized, but the blessing for you and the blessing for me is that even when they all fell away, 
even when they were all scandalized and offended by Jesus, even when the scandal of association with Jesus was too much for them to handle, it wasn't the end. Jesus kept pursuing. Jesus kept going after. Jesus kept, he had claimed them for himself and no one was going to be able to snatch them out of his hand. And so he rose from the dead and brought about their redemption. Are you scandalized by Jesus this morning? Have you met with offense because of him? Listen to me. The nature of God's love, the nature of the love of God in Jesus Christ is that your offense is not enough to keep him from going after you. You heard the gospel message of his grace. Know that he desires to even meet you in the offense and show you the glory of his face, the truth of his love, that you might be among those who are permanent citizens of his kingdom. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for your scandalous love in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would bless each of us in here not to be satisfied to leave here just either being offended or wrestling with unbelief, but that we would hear your gracious word and love meeting us even in the places we are offended and drawing us close to you through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen and amen.